It's a long passage to try to preach on all 27 verses, but we will look at least in an overview, overview fashion at the whole chapter today, best that we can. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Proverbs. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. And do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like a light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it, Flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away. From evil. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we now humbly ask that the same spirit that you in, gave to Solomon and the other writers of the book of Proverbs, that that same spirit would be with us so that we can understand its meaning, that we can have insight. That, Lord, we can also have a willingness, not just to understand it, but we can have a willingness and even a power to obey it. 
all for the glory of the one who is wisdom, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And together, God's people said, amen. So we look at this passage, I'd like for us just to begin by by outlining it so that we can see uh, the sections that will help us to know where we can hang our thoughts. And essentially, if you were going to outline it, one way to outline it would be the first nine verses are a section. And this is talking about the legacy of faith, the legacy of faith. So chapter four, verses one to nine, forming a section about the legacy of faith. And then verses 10 through 19 are about how we get on the right path. We get on the right path and and we we avoid the wrong people who are trying to pull us off of that path. So we, we get on the right path, verses 10 through 19. And then the final section is, again, you see it with the tagline, my son, that's the divider line in the thought in Proverbs. So it would be verses 20 to 27. And that section is about how we're not to swerve. If we're on the right path, we're not to swerve off of that right path and how important that will be for our life. So we begin in our first section, which is about a legacy of faith. So let me just ask you, if you think about all of the things that that have been given to you in your life, how would you value them if you were to value them? Um, You know, some of you say, well, you know, one of the things that my parents gave me is they gave me a roof over my head, and that would be very important. They they made sure I was fed. Vital things, and in this cold, cruel world, not always a given. Uh, Maybe you would look and say, you know what? My parents, they worked so hard to make sure that, that I could go to school, stay in school all the way through. Maybe they even... They had that, that luxury of sending you off to college. They, they worked so hard and you were blessed to be able to go off and, and further your education. Maybe that opened doors for you. Maybe it was that your family was in a particular field or business and, and that was part of the connection or you learned a skill growing up. You, you saw a father or a mother who could do something and you kind of absorbed that. Those are all part of a legacy Those are things that parents pass on. Those are doors that parents open. Those are ways that parents model and children are shaped by those parents. Now, not everyone in this room will feel what I'm getting ready to say as your own personal experience. But if you do, with great humbleness, because you know you could have been born anywhere into any family at any time, But if you were born into a family that believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know how blessed you are? And you think about it, in our world, over 7 billion people, and the vast majority of them born to mothers and fathers that do not believe in the one God, the maker of heaven and earth, the God who's revealed himself in the scripture, the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They don't know Jesus. They don't know that story, and they never pass that on to their children. And yet some of you were born into families. Maybe maybe it was only a mother, or maybe it was a mother and a father. Maybe it was mother, father, grandparents, as far back as you know. But if you were born into a family, you, you have no idea how far along the road, or at least how many gifts were offered to you. 
how many blessings were just right there for the taking. You still have to take them. But imagine that a person who was not born in a family like that, for you, you merely have to reach out and take hold of it. For them, they have to come hundreds or thousands of miles to be able to even hear of God, to hear of the Scriptures, to hear of Christ. And so what we see in these first nine verses is not just a legacy of faith, it's a family legacy of faith. And for us, so you would say, well, maybe you didn't have that, but you have sought to pass that on. You've sought to pass it on to your children, to your grandchildren, and how important it is of transmitting the faith the best that we can, offering it, teaching it, instructing it, giving instruction to that next generation and to the generation after that. Some of you might say, well, I'm, I'm not married or I am married and I have no children. Have you ever thought about this? Two of the most prolific, fruitful, child-bearing people in all of human history never had a biological child. Jesus? Paul? And, and yet here we are, in, and Jesus as God and Savior, we, we are his descendants. We are his offspring, as Isaiah 53 makes clear. And, and the Apostle Paul is sort of our apostle, the one who has introduced the Gentiles to the, to the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. So in this first section, we're, we're seeing in action this beautiful family legacy of faith. Notice uh, here in verse 1, it says, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. Uh, Here again, uh, as he has said uh, over and over again, it's sort of he's repeating himself, but there's a slight change. When he says, Hear, O sons, it's in the plural, and there's a couple of options. It could mean that this one man, who is in the concrete example, had Two sons, three sons, four sons, multiple sons. But by the ordering of the words in the original, the idea is not one person with a multitude of sons, but it is the generation of sons. It's that son, grandson. So sometimes you'll hear um, it said that so-and-so is the son of, and you look and you say, no, he really was his grandfather. That's, That's common in the Bible. So what you're seeing here is the first time he's talking about generations, generations that are to come. And so, here, O sons, here, son, here, grandson, great-grandson, all the way down. A father's instruction. And here the father is, again, involved in this teaching. He is the one who is giving out the instruction. And because of the word, Uh, 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 here, the idea is is that it is the the Word of God. It is the Torah of God. And it's not just that you hear it, you've got to pay attention. How many of us know when our parents talk, right, there's sometimes that tendency that we put up the do not disturb sign, right? We're just kind of there, but we're kind of vacant. We check out of the room, and we just get glaze over, and it's like, yeah, I've heard it. I've heard it before. Uh, you know, and we just, we just check out. And he says, you've not just got to, the words don't just have to go into your ears. You have to be paying attention. You've got to be focused in. 
This is, this is a key aspect. And, and this is what the Father is saying. He not only says uh, uh, what we're to do, but he gives you the benefits of this godly uh, instruction. What is it? One that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. What are you going to get? You're going to get insight. You're going to understand how the world works. If you listen to a godly father, a godly mother, you will, you will understand that. And how do we know again that it's father and mother? Well, back in, in chapter 1, uh, verse 8, hear my son your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. It's both parents involved, but he's making a concrete father-son example. But here, even in this uh, chapter, you'll see the mother brought back in in verse 3, the only one in the sight of my mother. Both parents intimately involved in the teaching of sons and daughters, but the concrete example of Proverbs is a father to son, and in the case of chapter 4, it is to sons, to the generations that come after. And he's saying, look, this is how you're going to understand how things work. And he says, for, what I, for I give you good, is really what the word is. I just give you good. He's not trying to teach them. You think about how, um, how many things that the world teaches, or even when our parents fail, even Christian parents can fail. We learn some of our worst habits from them, don't we? We learn some of our worst habits. I mean... You'd have to say that uh, Jacob, who was known as deceiver, heel grabber, uh, that he learned some of that from his mother, Rebecca, right? He learned some of it from her because she was the one who said, well, this is a way we can trick your dad. Uh, so in other words, you can pass on bad things, but the, the, the point is, is here he's saying, look, when I'm speaking the commands of God, when I'm speaking the word of God to you, this is a good thing that I'm passing on. I'm giving you good, not bad. But it's not just that you've got to take a hold of it. You've got to just receive it. You have to continue to hold on to it. You have to retain it. Receive it, retain it. And see, that's what he says here, don't forsake it. So you'll see sometimes kids, they're growing up, maybe they're walking with the Lord, they, they are baptized, they make a public profession of faith, and they, you know, somewhere along the line in those teenage years, then all of a sudden they go, nah, that was mom and dad's deal. And they walk a different road. He says, you, it's not just that you had it once. It's not a transaction that you can just rest on and say, yeah, I, I'm good. I was saved and baptized when I was 12, and now I can live however I want to live because the, the contract has been signed. No, he says, it's a matter of, of, of you not forsaking it. Now, notice that he's getting ready to move the setting. He says in verse 3, when I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother. Do you notice what dad's doing here? So you've got one father to his son, and he says, all right, let me just tell you, back when I was growing up, have you ever had those stories that you had from your, your dad? You know, back when I was growing up, and so he's going to take him on the way back machine. We're going to go back, uh, uh, back to the future. We're going to go uh, uh, and see how things were. And so dad's going to take him on a little, a little historical field trip. He's going to take him on a, on a jaunt down memory lane. He says, look, when I was a son, so here's the, son, the dad talking to his son. He says, now when I was a son, 
when I was a child. Now, by the way, this, um, you would think, why does he say when I was a son, not when I was a child? This is, this is specific speech because son in the Bible does, is not merely, in particular Old Testament here, and, and you see it even with Jesus, the son of God. It's not just an issue of biology in the Old Testament. It's not just you can say, I am biologically related to that person. He is the biological offspring of that man. It is a spiritual relation that he is the son and therefore he will resemble in his spiritual commitments and in his character. That literally to be a son is to be one who is not only like, but one who is obedient to. It's a very special relationship of, of obedience, not a, a, a situation of, of just saying of biology. So, literally, you're, he's a chip off of the old block. He is like him in terms of what he believes because he was accepting of what the father said. And notice he says, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother. The idea of tender here is uh, of being a tender twig, still can be, still malleable. You know, you get older, you become a tree trunk like some of us who've been on the planet for a while. It's a little harder to shape you and mold you. For good or for bad, we're kind of less malleable, less uh, able to be molded and shaped than a, than a tender child. But he says, when I was, I was a, a little child. Now, not all children are tender. Some children come out stubborn, stay stubborn. But this is one who desired, I want to be obedient to my father. I want to learn from my father. So he's tender and, and he's, he's malleable. I, I think one thing that this is, I remember one person in our church said this to me years ago. He was talking about raising kids and, and, and he and his wife had several and he said, he said, I, I think if you don't really put every effort to raise your child right before the age of four, you've lost them. <laughs> he says, pretty much, he says that you just got, you can't come and say, well, you know what, I'll start parenting when they're about eight or ten, you know, or, or, or sometimes parents bring in teenagers to me and they go, fix them, you know, and I'm like, you know, this is a little bit late. They're already kind of already shaped and, and moving in a direction. You've got to start young, right? You've got to be consistent. And, and so here you're seeing that, that they were starting tender. It's never too early to begin to teach and, and to discipline in a first a verbal and physical way to your child. And, and then it says here, uh, the only one in the sight of my mother... This is saying this, was, this child had a very special place in their heart. In fact, it, it could be the idea here of the one and only. And so some people, they see this connection of this language uh, to being the one and only as, as Jesus was. But, but here, um, the mother just really loved this child, the father starting young. And then notice in verse 4 what it says, he taught me. He taught me. Oh, it's so important, parents. You teach your kids how to catch. It's important, right? You teach them how to shake hands, right? Teach them how to look people in the eyes when they're talking to them. I mean, all the things you've got to do. But you don't fulfill your duty 
as a father or a mother if you will not teach them about what matters most. If you will not teach them to love the Bible, if you will not teach them to love Christ, then you have not done your job as a believing father or mother. That is the number one job. And notice it doesn't just say, this is so important. It doesn't, we, we live in a world of outsourcing everything, right? So we go, I'm sick. I, we outsource our health to a doctor, right? Go in, you tell me what's wrong, and you give me a pill to fix it. We outsource our education, right? You want your child to learn how to read? Send them to somebody else, right? We outsource clothes, right? At, you know, we don't make our own clothes. We outsource it. We get, send it, go to JCPenney's and buy it. You know what we live? We also live in a day where we outsource religious education, don't we? What do we say? Well, I did my job. I took them to church. Or even one removed. I sent them to church. <laughs> but, but here, you notice, it doesn't just say the father said, I got you in a position where somebody else could teach you. You see, there are more, their heart is open to you. Their heart is tender to you. It is up to fathers to say in those tender years of a child when the child is really looking up to them to be able to say, he taught me. He taught me. He, he taught me how to pray. My dad taught me how to pray. Along with a group of other little boys, we were gathered in a little group. We were kneelers in, in, in Crawl Road, one of the most uh, drug-filled poverty uh, places in all of Belize City. We got on little kneelers around these pews, and he taught us how to pray. I heard, and how did he do it? He prayed, and then he said, David, you pray. And I figured, well, I don't know what to say, so I'll say what he said. I learned. Right? He taught me. So, so, so let's, let's just be clear. You, you, uh, his parents loved him, therefore they taught him. You, you just can't say, I, oh, I love my child, and not teach your child. But here, what a beautiful word. He taught me. He taught me. And by the way, let me just say this. You are teaching. You're teaching whether you're intentional about it or not. Your children are watching. They're going to pick up habits. They're going to become you for better or worse. I mean, how many of us remember when we go, oh, I'll never do what my dad did. Oh, he was so embarrassing. I can't believe he did that. And you become 40 or 45 and you go, I've become my father. Or I've become my mother. Right? We, we, we have those seeds planted. It may take a while to germinate, but they, they come up. And, and notice, then it says, he taught me and said to me. And by the way, then what do you notice in the middle of verse 4? What do you notice right after the comma? What's the first thing after the comma? The very first thing before the letter L. What do you see in your Bible? A quote. And then you're going to notice that quote is going to go all the way down through the word crown, after the period in crown. So what is the father who's speaking to the son, whose words is he transmitting to his son? His father's. So what you have here is the grandfather is speaking through the father to the grandson. 
And so you see the multi-generational line. You see how it is passed from one person to another person to another person. And so he's going to quote, and you're going to realize that everything that the grandfather says is exactly what the father has been saying. Because neither the grandfather nor the father made it up. They got it from God. And so here you're seeing this connection. And we've heard all these things before, but you know, one of the things, if you read at the end of Ecclesiastes, it talks about Proverbs, and it says one of the things that they need to be, it says they're like goads, but they are like nails that are firmly set. And what he's doing essentially, you say, I've heard this sermon before, you've said it 10 times already, Pastor David, not me, the Word of God. The Word of God not only knows what we need, but the proportions in which we need it, and apparently... It thinks this is a lesson that needs to be hammered home. So it's going to come at us again, and it's like he started in chapter 1, he said these things in chapter 1, he says them in chapter 2, he says them in chapter 3, but it's like a hit of the hammer because he knows that for most of us, truth goes in and it's like a nail that just goes in a little bit. And we go, I've got it. No, no, you haven't really got it. Boom, you need a little more. Well, I've got it now. No, that nail needs to be all the way in. It needs to be flush with the wood. It needs to be firmly fixed. And that's what he's doing. He's literally, he's nailing us over and over again until we get it. And now he's wanting to say to his son, okay, you just think your dad's making this up? Well, let me tell you what your grandfather said. So grandfathers, you have a very special role. Grandmothers, you have a very special role. This is the, this is the legacy of the faith that a family has in God and in his word. So just hear the same things that he said over and over again. This is the grandfather speaking. Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Well, that's exactly what the father's been saying. He says, it's not just an external behavior. It's got to be your heart. That's why we're nailing this thing in. It's got to be the core of your being, not just your feelings, the word heart in the Old Testament is not just about emotions. It means the center, the, 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 the control center of who we are. Everything, our, our desires, our thoughts, uh, our, our, our choices, they all flow from this biblical idea, Old Testament idea of heart. And he said, so you've got to hold fast my words, you've got to keep my commandments, and then the payoff is you'll live. You'll live. And as we said, the ultimate... Uh, end of that story is not just life now, but eternal life. And so then he's going to say, all right, well, then what, where does it start? He says, you've got to get wisdom. You've got to get skill for godly living. This is absolutely essential, and he's going to use economic language. It means, as he'll say later on in Proverbs, buy wisdom. Whatever the cost, buy it, right? It, it, it's, it's using that idea that it is a scarce commodity. It's like when we even have a slight possibility of snow and you go to Food Lion and all the milk and all the bread is gone, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just gone, right? Because people go, it's scarce, it's rare. And he's saying, that's what you need to understand. There's, this is a rare commodity. You've got to get it. You've got to, you've got to grab a hold of it. You've got, to, you've got to purchase it. Do whatever it takes. So get wisdom, get insight. And do not forget and do not turn away from the, mouths of, from the words of my mouth. You know, I, I think about this. That verse is one I've just been dealing with because there's so much good, but, but you have to understand. You know the verse that 
lot of parents struggling with rebellious kids they hold on to, and I, I think it's right to hold on to it, but it's, you know, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And, and that's true, but as we said about the truth of Proverbs, it's not the entirety of the story. Let me just tell you one obvious reason it can't just be, look, I did my job, I said it to him, therefore it's all going to be okay. How do you know? If that were the totality of truth, why would he spend chapter after chapter, verse after verse, speaking to the children, not to the parents, and saying you actually have to receive these words and hold fast to these words, if it was just some sort of automatic thing? I was raised in a Christian home, they taught me truth, therefore it's okay. You have to receive and retain what your parents gave you. There are many a child who grow up in a home and they reject it. And what could have been the blessing of life and godliness, instead they walk away from it. Now, so, so here, it, and it wouldn't, he wouldn't be focusing all this attention on the children and grandchildren unless they had a part in that equation as well. And so and then he says, uh, he changes the metaphor in verse 6. He says, do not forsake her and she will keep you love you, and she will guard you. So one, he says, this is a very valuable commodity. It's like a pearl of great price. Sell everything you've got, buy it, right? It's a field in which you found treasure. You know, just don't tell anybody and do everything you can to get that field. But then he also, now he changes the picture and says, it's, it's the woman of your dreams. That's what he says. It's a woman of your dreams. And what does he say about it? He says, don't forsake her. Don't let that woman, you know, we even have the expression in English, right? She's a real keeper, right? Don't let her go. She's a keeper. Well, he's saying wisdom's a keeper. If your parents gave it to you, it's not just an economic commodity. She's beautiful. She's a wonderful woman. You need to not forsake her. And if you don't, if you don't forsake her, you know what? She will, she'll embrace you back. She'll keep you. Love her. See, this is not just economic language. It's love language. you got to love wisdom. It's not just something we're doing to try to manipulate the world. It's an issue of, of heart. You, you know what the one dowry that Christ requires for his dying for your sins? There's only one thing that he's asking of you. Your heart. He wants your heart. That's the price. That's the dowry that he, he says. He says that you're to come to him and not just in a mechanistic way, but, but with all of the center of who you are. You're to give him yourself. And notice then it says, and she will love you and, and love her and she will guard you. There's just a protection that comes with it. And then verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. So, Again, that's the, the economic thing. It means that it's not just going to come to you. Even if it, your dad is speaking, you've still got to take it. Even if your mother is saying wise words, you cannot be closed off to it. You've got to get it. Remember we said last week, we need to make a commitment at a point in our life. I want, I want to seek after. I want to ask for. I want to knock until God gives me the wisdom from above. I want that. And, and here he's saying, it's not just going to fall in your lap. Even if it's right beside you, even if it's right at your ears, you've got to take it. You've got to work for it. 
And he says, and whatever you get, get insight. And the idea here of insight is this, that you actually know how to think. Parents, that's one of the things you're teaching your children is how to think through everything that they face. Because you can't prepare them with laws for everything. You know, you think that the law is, is, is this particular, you know, you, we don't do this and we do this. You need to teach them how to think, how to apply biblical precepts, biblical principles, biblical truth to everything they face. Because the truth is they're going to face some things in the 21st century when you're dead and gone that you can't even think of. But you know what? God's word has given them all they need for life and godliness, but they need to know how to think through things biblically. It says, here's what the situation is. How do we think through this biblical fashion? And that's what the insight is. Then notice he prize this woman. This is your this is your uh, your 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 beautiful wife, right? Prize her highly, and she will exalt you if you honor, if you embrace her. The word in Hebrew is a little sweeter than that. It says, if you cuddle her, right? You got to cuddle up with wisdom. Can't be something you say, I'm going to think about what the, why, the godly way to, to live is on Sundays for an hour. You need to be cuddling up with wisdom every day of the week, with every situation. Where uh, this, is, this is part of the problem is, is we, we have a, a set of Christian doctrines and they're here and our life is over here and they're like in, they're, they're, they're two separate realms that never, they never uh, uh, intersect. There's no touching and basically what it says is, is you've got to realize that the wisdom of God will empower you, will guide you in Every facet of your life, from your job to dealing with a stranger. This week I came home, and some of you know our dog died, and a stranger to me, Monty, you've been interested to know, a stranger to me had dug the hole for my dog to be buried. He was a Christian. He heard the situation, and he dug the hole. When I got home, it was there. What was he doing? He was just letting his Christian life influence his day. And he helped a person he didn't know before that day began. Do something that he would have never been on his radar. There was no law of God. You must do this. But he let God's spirit guide him. And the, and the love of Christ guide him. And, and it was just flowing through his life in an unexpected but beautiful way. Notice the, the prize. It says, she will place on your head a grateful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Uh, the idea here of beautiful crown, it's the victor's crown. It means, you know, we all want to have to put it in a kind of crass way, we want a life that's successful, right? Our problem is, is we just don't know how to define success. We define it, define it in very shallow ways. And, and you say, no, the victor's crown is, is that you've lived a godly life, trusting God with all your heart, not leaning on your own understanding. You've lived a life where you've received the mercy of God and you're merciful to others. And you've received a life that when your body wears out, you're not actually dead. That's the victor's crown. Thanks be to God who gives us the 
victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, just a, a word about this. We, I, I, just, I just want to kind of help you think through one thing. We live in a day and age that is very anti-tradition, right? In fact, you can almost say in a lot of evangelical word, uh, churches, that's, that's a dirty word, right? Tradition. But, but that's too simple a way to look at it. Some tradition, things that your parents believed or things, ways they acted, that they pass on to you are good. That's a good thing to maintain. That's a good practice to have. Uh, I mean, I could look and say, you know what, I'm not going to read the Bible in my home because I don't want to be a person that's a person of tradition. Right? My parents did that. I don't want to do it in my home because that's tradition. No, I mean, that's too simplistic a view. The question is, is the tradition which they passed on in line with the Word of God? And as G.K. Chesterton said, he said, one of the things about tradition is that it's giving votes to the most obscure of all people. Our ancestors. Our parents. We allow them to have a say in how we live. Always being judged by the plumb line of Scripture. If it's a good practice, a good thing that they pass on to us, we carry. So tradition in and of itself. The Apostle Paul said, the, the tradition that I handed on to you, do. The question is, is it a good tradition? Is it a godly tradition? Is it in line with the Word of God. So the Word of God both create, critiques our traditions, but it also creates traditions. We have a tradition. We get together every Sunday morning. Why do we do that, right? If we want to be completely anti-tradition, let's just say we'll get together next time we want to get together. Why? Because it's a tradition that comes out of an understanding of the need for weekly worship and fellowship. So that's, that's the grandfather's talk. You see it ends there uh, in 9. And then verses 10 uh, through 19, we now go back to the father. So the grandfather is, recedes back into the past, and we pick up with the father speaking to the son. He says, hear my son and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. Again, just talking about how, how lives are cut short, not just here, but eternally, if you don't listen to the God-given words that come to you through parents that, that are obedient to the Scripture and to the Word of God. And then he says again, I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. If you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let her go, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Notice how every one of the words there is about a path about a way, right? He's saying, look, I, I, I've, I've pointed you to the right path. I, I've helped you get on that right path. You're on the right path if you've, if you've taken hold of my words that my grandfather gave me and ultimately God gave us. Stay on that path. Don't, don't get off the path. Over and over. Notice all the words that relate to that. Um, the way of wisdom the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step, if you run, you'll not stumble. In verse 14, the path, do not walk in the way of evil. Um, all of these are metaphors. I mean, sometimes I don't hear it as much now, but back in the early 80s, one of the ways to describe your Christian life was that people come up to you and say, how's your walk, right? 
And what they meant by that is what? How's your walk with the Lord? Right? How's your... And, and we kind of... It sounds a little cliche to us today, but the truth is they got it right out of the Bible. It's a walk. It, it's not a, a, a point where we came to the grocery store of God and we bought our stuff and then we went on our merry way. We literally are walking with Christ. It is a day-by-day following. We get on that path and we, we, we follow Him. And, and the Father's saying, I taught you there is a direction, a course that, that wisdom sets you on. And it is going to be a path of uprightness. If you follow wisdom, you will never go into evil. You will never go into paths that will ultimately lead to uh, destruction or hurting yourself or hurting others. I was talking recently with a man about my faith in Christ and my urging him to become a believer of Christ. And, and I just said to him, I said, you know what? I said, one testimony I can give is I've followed the Lord for lots of years and never once, never once has he led me, never once has he led me or encouraged me to do something that was evil or ugly or awful. Because sometimes people have these feelings about Christians, that if you become a Christian, you're going to somehow become this, this really very strange person. And this may be strange to the world, but it's never been evil. It's never been ugly. Everything Christ has asked me to do has been good. I haven't always done it. And every time I've chosen my own path, it's been a sad result. But he's always led me on a path of uprightness. And so he's saying, look, when you're walking this way, you're not going to be hampered. And then he even moves the picture to running. And remember, these are people that are not running on paved roads. They're, they're running on narrow paths that are rocky. And he says, and if you're running on this road, he says, you're, you're, you're not even going to stumble. You're not going to stumble. So he moves back and he says, you've got to hold on to this instruction. You've got to guard her because she is your life. In, in essence, the wisdom he's talking about are the 66 books of the Word of God. That we're called to treasure it and all that it shows us, all that it teaches us. We've, we've got to say, this is, these are words of life to us. It, it doesn't matter what's popular. It doesn't matter even what is mandated by society. We are going to, full, we're going to hold on to this because every location on this earth is, a, is not the end destination. They are just, they're just stops along the way. We're headed to Him. And we will not stumble, but we've got to hold on to that instruction. So every, every step, so tomorrow when you're going to school or tomorrow when you're going to work, what are you going to need to be able to guide you safely through tomorrow? You're going to need the teachings of the Word of God. And you're going to need to know how to think through how they apply to the situations that you will face. And he says, look, you hold on to this, she'll guard you, she will be life. And then he gives him a warning. The other path. Here's the, the, the narrow path, but here's the wide, broad path. And he says, don't go on that. He says, don't enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Right? The two roads diverging in the wood. Right? And he says, don't, don't, don't go down the path of the evil. 
Many of you remember those opportunities in life where it was a real crossroads for you. You could have gone one direction. Maybe even tomorrow there will be a crossroads put in front of you. And he says, don't go down that way. Avoid it. Now notice how he describes the people that are on that path. Verse 16, for they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Do you know what essentially he's summarizing and saying people that are on the path of the wicked? He's saying they're evil-holics. They're evil-holics. If they can't go to bed at night unless they've done something bad that day because they're, they're addicted to evil and they can't sleep unless the goal of their life is to make somebody else stumble. Do you see how wicked this is? They want to bring people down. That's their goal, you know. Uh, uh, um, their, their, their goal is not just to go down themselves, but to bring others down. Do you know what this means? They have to be satanically led. Because isn't that exactly... Satan could have just said, Oh, I messed up. I'm, I'll just go over in my corner and wait for judgment. But what does he do from the Garden of Eden on? He says, I'm going down, but if I'm going down, I'm taking you with me. If I'm going to hell, I'm dragging you to hell with me. And that's those that are, have the father of lies, the murderer as their father, they're going to act like their father because that's what they, a son is obedient to the father. And so here they're going, I just got to do something evil. I can't even sleep unless I've committed some sin today. It's the joy of my life. And if I haven't brought somebody else down with me, if I haven't corrupted someone else, he says, this is, this is just showing it's not just they do bad things and they feel bad about it. It's their delight, as in following God is our delight. The, the evildoer, they don't just do evil, they love evil. They love darkness. And they want to pull people into it with you. But he compares the path, verse 18... But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. You know what this means. And, and this is something, if you follow Christ, I just, and I can testify to this. When I came out as a teenager and, uh, into a life of sin, and I was not walking with the Lord, and God in his providence, when I fell down beside the, the, the bed in my brother's guest room in Ellerby, North Carolina in 1987, and I pled with God to help me. And he put me on a different path that day. And all I can say is, is when that path started, it was still really, 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 really dark. And I would say for years, I remember saying, you know, I'm a believer, but man, the thing is, I just don't have a lot of faith. I'm not sure about the Bible. There's so much stuff in there. I don't know if it's all true, but I, I kind of like the big idea. You know what I can just tell you, though? The more you walk with him, it's like the sun that had been down below the sky edge. And you see that first light. It then begins to rise and rise and rise. And all, the, all I can say is, is that as you get closer to the finish line, the sun is a little brighter. It, yeah, you're weaker outwardly, physically, you're weaker. 
But, but, but you can say, and I can see it in some of you who've been walking with the Lord for decades. I mean, you could come in here and you could try to convince you out. You could show everything in the world against Christ and against Christianity. You could throw every manner of sin in front of your face and you wouldn't even be tempted by it. You wouldn't even be shaken by it because it is as though the Son of Righteousness has risen with healing in His wings and, and the end of your life is not an ever-encroaching darkness but is moving toward an ever-increasing light that is like full, bright, noonday sun. And I can just tell you, I, I'm, I'm probably somewhere in the morning sun but it's sure a lot brighter than it was 25 years ago. And I just want to keep, I'm just keeping on going. And, and then I see some of you, and, and, and who knows in God's timing, but, but if things go according to nature, you're close to the gate. And it's almost, you can't see it yourself, but when I look at you, I just see the reflected glory of God. And you're like, you're not saying, oh, I want to go back and be, 16 again, you're like, I can't wait for what lies ahead. You believe that the full sun is in front of you, not death and darkness. It is a stormy Jordan, but it is a Jordan through which you will pass. Not so with the wicked. Their way, it just gets darker and darker and darker. And eventually it's so dark, they're just stumbling around, falling over every rock, every pothole, and they don't even know what they're falling over. In other words, it doesn't all play out. So sometimes we, you, you have to make a faith choice at the beginning of your life. You have to say, you know what, I'm going to get on this path, even though I don't see all the light of it, I'm going to get on this path. And what the Father is saying, the end of this path is going to be brightness. But if you go on the path of the evil, it's going to be darkness. And you just have to say, all right, today, I'm getting on that path. Even though I don't understand it, don't feel it, don't get every aspect of it, I'm on that path. And he says the ultimate goal is deep darkness or full day. He makes these same points in the final section here, and I only make one point out of it. He's again talking about their path, and he ends in verse 27, don't swerve to the right or left, turn your foot away from evil. Reiterates, the blessings that come, the life, the healing. But he says there in verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Um, he gives you one warning. He says, you know what? It's, it's not just about your behavior. You know, as we say, uh, reputation is, is what other people say about you. Character is who you truly are. Reputation is is what, what people can see. Character is what you are in private and in the dark. And he says, you know what really matters is not just your behavior. Behavior will follow, but we want to have the insight to understand something. And this is key. The, the center, the, 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 the source from which all behavior flows is the heart. And Christ is not interested in your obedience. He's not even interested just in the profession of your lips. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. 
He wants you all in where you say, I'm on this path. I'm forsaking all other paths. I'm not swerving to the left. I'm not swerving to the right. Jesus makes this language very clear when he says, and he takes on the language of, of trails and paths and, and roads when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you gotten onto that path and say, I'm going to walk it out, clinging to my Savior, trusting that it needs to be real from my heart. And as His Spirit and His Word flows in me, it will flow out of me. Many of you in this room remember the day of February the 23rd, 1975. It was a day that was a very sad day for our county, maybe even more particularly for the little town in which I live in. About 9.25 that night on a very foggy night when the Yadkin River was quite swollen, a car struck a timber railing on a bridge that had been moved from High Rock Lake and put there to cross the Yadkin River in 1938. And from 1938 forward, everybody had been saying, this bridge is not adequate. It's not adequate. It's dangerous. They had been appealing with the state to put a new bridge in, and the state said, well, we don't have money. And it lasted 48, 58, 68. It lasted for 37 years, even as a used bridge. But everybody knew it was only a matter of time. When that car struck the timber, the bridge collapsed. Over the next 17 minutes, six vehicles drove off that fallen bridge, that broken bridge, down into the Yadkin River. Four people died. One of them was a three-year-old girl named Andrea Lee Needham, along with her mother. There was a man named Hugh and his wife, Ola. It was found later on Hugh's person in his coat pocket where he was dragged out of the river. It was found a letter. And the letter was to the state of North Carolina warning them, saying, this bridge is going to collapse. Many others fell in the bridge that night, including our now sheriff, Graham Atkinson. He was one who, as a 10-year-old boy, went off that bridge into that river. You know, the life of sin is one that I can sit here right now and tell you, you're going across this bridge today, but it will ultimately collapse and you will wash away. It may not be today. God said to Adam and Eve, eat of this fruit, surely you will die. And they ate it and they didn't die. At least not physically. And so they go, wow, I guess I can just keep on. Keeping on. But I promise you, on the authority of God's word, no matter how many years you might get out of that rickety old wooden bridge of sin, there will come a night when it will collapse and the path that you have chosen for yourself will lead to death and destruction but it need not be 
because the Word of God and the one who says, I am the way, the safe way, the true way, I am the life, you can walk on me and I will take you safely home to the presence of the Father right now, today, this moment. All in. Christ, I'm on your path. I'm walking with you. I'm trusting you. And I believe that I'll not just get five years down the road, 37 years down the road. I will get all the way past my final breath, crossing Jordan's icy waters into a land that is fairer than day. Would you pray with me? Father, we only believe what we can see and what is right in front of us. But Lord, you are so gracious to show us the end of the matter. You tell us if we go on a path of sin, you warn us, it will collapse. It will collapse. You will die. You will perish. You don't only warn us, but you give us another path. It's a smaller path. You've got to go through a very narrow gate, a gate that really is only as wide as one man, namely the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we get on that path, you promise that though the world may not believe it, though we may not see the end, you tell us the end will be life. The end will be to be in the Father's house. So Lord, we thank you. And I pray that there would not be one person who would continue on a path that will eventually lead to death, but that everyone in this room would humbly say, Christ, I come to you as my way, as the way. I trust your bridge is safe from earth to life. In Jesus' name we pray, and together God's people said, Amen.